After such a wonderful occasion of 200 years in Charlotte Chapel, I wonder what you think lies ahead of us in the future. What can we expect next in Charlotte Chapel? Well, obviously, none of us can be certain of the details that await us. But I I want to assure you this morning that the next chapter of the history of Charlotte Chapel will include at least one thing. Problems. Now, I say this with confidence, not because I'm a prophet, or a pessimist, or even paranoid, I promise you problems because for the last 40 years or more I've been studying this book, the Bible. And for the last 10 months we as a church have been studying one of the books in the Bible, the book of Acts in the New Testament part of the Bible if you're not familiar with the Bible. And in it, under the title The Spreading Flame, we've seen how the fire or the flame of the good news about Jesus was carried from its base in Jerusalem to the outlying provinces and beyond, uh, just as Jesus had commanded his followers. In fact, this is our verse for the year. Acts 1, verse 8, Jesus said, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses. And he said, beginning in Jerusalem, and to all Judea and Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. And we've seen how this has been worked out in practice. But we have also seen something else, if you've been with us. That wherever the fire of the gospel has spread, there have been strenuous attempts to snuff it out, to extinguish the flame, culminating in persecution, violence, and even murder. That was the case then. It has been the case right throughout the history of the church in the last 2,000 years, and is still the case today. Where God is at work, the enemy is also at work. Where God is at work producing blessing, bringing blessing, the enemy is at work sowing discord and producing problems. And can I say that, by the way, the reverse is also true. A church which has no problems is a church which is no problem to the enemy. Now, forewarned is is forearmed. And we need not only, therefore, to expect problems, but we need to be aware, as in any battle, of the enemy's tactics as the Apostle Paul himself put it, writing to the Christians in Corinth, he said, we are not unaware of Satan's schemes. That's 2 Corinthians 2.11, if you're making notes. So, do we know what his tactics are? If we're going to expect problems, how are they going to begin? They begin rarely, if ever, with outright hostility, persecution, death. With the fist. No, they almost always begin. In fact, I would say always begin by using another more potent weapon that each one of us possesses. Not the fist, but the tongue. Especially to create dissension and to spread rumours and lies. And as we resume our series, this is actually, if you're keeping a note of it, this is number 35, and they're all on the internet if you're interested in following where we've gone. But as we resume our series in Acts, The Apostle Paul has returned from his third missionary journey. He's been preaching the good news of Jesus throughout the Roman world, the Mediterranean world and beyond. And he he comes back to Jerusalem, as it were, home base, and he brings good news of churches being planted in Gentile, that is, non-Jewish areas, and of thousands of people coming to faith in Jesus. 
He also brings with him a gift from these churches and Christians back to the home base in Jerusalem for the Christians there who are undergoing suffering. Now, you might think this is a great time for celebration and thanksgiving to God, not unlike our anniversary last weekend. But although it begins that way, in fact, the celebrations last one day, (laughs) serious problems begin to emerge the very next day. Problems that begin with rumours. And that's what I want to focus on this morning. How things develop, and in fact, within seven days, there is a full-scale riot. So, look with me at this under the title. I've called it Responses to Rumours. So, what we need to do, first of all, is read the passage before us. It's in the Bible. There are Bibles in the pews. If you can't see one, just ask for someone to pass one to you. And uh, it's Acts 21, verses 17 to 36. And if you have a pew Bible, it's right near the end of the Bible, page 1118. 1118. So notice our theme and see if you can trace the rumours in the story here before us. This is Luke, the author of Acts, writing. And he's obviously there because he says, when we arrived, he's in the party. When we arrived, verse 17, when we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What should we do? They'll certainly hear that you've come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites and pay their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there's no truth in these reports about you but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we've written to them our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place. They previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole crowd was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he'd done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing, some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. 
When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, Away with him! Well, that's our reading. Let's just pray, first of all, and ask God to help us understand and apply what happened all those years ago to our own particular situation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this record that Luke has left us of those tumultuous days in the city of Jerusalem. Here we are in another city, Lord, in Edinburgh, in a different situation, but we believe there are things we need to learn from your word and put into practice. So help me to explain it clearly and help us to obey whatever you might say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now, keep your Bible open in front of you. Very obviously, you'll see that this section of verses divides into two parts. Centered on rumours about Paul, who's the central character. First of all, just let me tell you where we're going, so you can stay with me. We'll look at rumours in the church, verses 17 to 26, and we'll see how an attempt was made to address these rumours in a constructive way. And then secondly, rumours in the city, verses 27 to 36, and we'll see how these rumours were addressed in a very different way, in a destructive way. So let's look more closely at each of these. I'll spend more time on the first one in case you wonder how long it's going to go on, alright? So just stay with me. First of all, rumours in the church, verses 17 to 26. If you've been with us on the series, you'll know that Paul and his party are now making their way to the city of Jerusalem after an arduous journey. Uh, they, they take a shortcut across the sea because they want to get to Jerusalem in time for the great feast festival, the Jewish festival of Pentecost. The city is heaving with pilgrims. Some people believe as many as two million people crammed into this quite small area. It's a tinderbox waiting to be ignited, as we'll see. They're hosted, if you look at the previous verse, uh, verses to what we read, uh, verse 16, in the home of a man called Manasson, one of the first Christians, a Greek, who came from the city of Cyprus. They receive a warm welcome as they enter the city from the leaders of the church. And the next day, hopefully after a good night's sleep and a good breakfast, uh, they meet with James, who is the leader of the church. This James is the brother of Jesus, who came to faith after the resurrection. He's now one of the leaders, the leader of the church, along with the elders of the church. We don't know where Peter and John are. We've probably assumed that they're out somewhere preaching or encouraging the churches outside the city. And, and you can just imagine as they get together and feed back. Sometimes we do this in Charlotte Chapel when people come back. We've had a wonderful privilege with one of our oldest missionaries, Andrew McCabe, in India since 1950. Uh, came back over these weeks and reported what God was doing in India. And that's where we've sent uh, this money. We will be sending it that we've, we've raised for Andrew for work among the Taro people. And you can imagine Paul and his friends getting together and telling the amazing stories of what had happened on their journeys and how people had come to faith and how there'd been riots and fires and, uh, you know, even about the guy who was in a sermon and fell asleep out the window and was killed and was raised to life, you know. Not the normal sort of thing we hear in Charlotte Chapel, but we can only hope, looking around the congregation this morning. And the, res the response from James and the elders is fulsome and positive. Look at verse 20. When they heard this, they praised God. But almost as soon as the praise meeting is finished, we come to this problem. It's a problem centered on a rumour. You see, God has not only been working outside Jerusalem on these missionary journeys with thousands of non-Jews coming to faith, Gentiles coming to faith. Within the city of Jerusalem itself, there are also many, many Jews coming to faith in Jesus. 
If you read the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, 3,000 people came to faith in one day. Uh, Soon after that, Luke tells us in chapter 4, verse 4, it had risen to 5,000 men alone. And the growth didn't stop there. People kept coming to faith in Jesus in the city. If you look at chapter 6, verse 7, so the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now, all these new believers were Jewish by background and culture. Although they accepted Jesus as the promised Messiah, they had not abandoned their Jewish heritage. In fact, James tells Paul they are literally, uh, verse 20, zealots of the law, the law of Moses. That's the first five books in our Old Testament. Not surprising that many of them were priests and probably remained priests at this stage. So when they heard about Paul's mission to Gentiles, they were hesitant, if not suspicious, especially when Paul was a former Pharisee. And they were particularly concerned about a rumour that was doing the rounds. Did you see it? Verse 21. The rumour about what Paul teaches. James says to Paul, they have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. Now, notice the very words that Luke uses. He says, they have been informed, i.e., somebody told them. That's how rumours always spread. They spread anonymously. The occasions when, as a pastor, a church member has come to me and said, Pastor, I have heard, fill in the dots, and when they ask, I always ask them, where did you hear it from? And they say, somebody told me. And I say, would you tell me who the somebody was? No, it's anonymous. Or it's a friend of a friend of a friend who told me. But that's how rumours begin and spread. As someone has said, and I don't know the name of the someone, by the way, uh, Though a rumour doesn't have a leg to stand on, it spreads very rapidly. So it was in the church in Jerusalem. You can imagine the conversation as these reports came back about Paul. Have you heard what Paul's preaching? Somebody told me that he says that circumcising our sons is a waste of time. Really? I, I, I heard that he said you could eat pork chops. Is that right? Well, a friend of a friend of my uncle said he'd seen him eating a bacon butty. That's how stories and rumours spread. Now, the issue you need to recognise is a serious one for the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. At this time, Jewish nationalism was on the rise. The Roman governor, a guy called Felix, was held in, despised by the population. There was political unrest. There's a big festival on with up to a couple of million people milling in the city. And these Jewish believers in Jerusalem, after a period of hostility, had now established a kind of an easy status quo with the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, James was very highly regarded by the non-Christian Jews. So, it's a tricky situation that can erupt into conflict at any time. By a rumour that recently arrived Paul has come into the city and he's the guy who tells them that they should give up being Jews. But it wasn't true. Yes, Paul had taught that circumcision was not necessary for salvation and that Gentile converts didn't need to become Jews in order to follow Jesus. That's what he preached. 
But in doing so, he was only agreeing, observing what they'd all agreed in Acts chapter 15 when they'd had this big conference, and James mentions this later, that Gentile believers, all they needed to do was these four cultural things to follow and keep in line with the rest. Paul never told Jews to turn away from Moses, not to circumcise their sons. Uh, the American pastor Warren Wiersbe comments, Paul did warn the Gentiles not to get involved in the old Jewish religion. That's in Galatians 4. But he nowhere told the Jews that it was wrong for them to practice their customs, so long as they did not trust in ceremony or make their customs a test of fellowship. Now notice, James and the other elders know that the rumours are not true. They genuinely praise God for what God is doing through Paul among the Gentiles. They know he's only following the guidelines, but they want to try and deal with the situation firmly yet sensitively. And there's a lesson here for all of us, especially leaders in dealing with rumours in the local church. Refute them if they aren't true, and if you aren't sure, check out the facts before you pass on the rumour to someone else. Listen, you could save the pastoral team an enormous amount of time if you just did that and the pastor in any church. Countless church splits would be avoided if rumours were quashed at source, or at least dealt with. And if there is an issue, then we need to face up to it. Let me just give an example from a few years ago in Charlotte Chapel. Um, Some years ago, a notice appeared in our church bulletin saying there was an evangelistic event to be held in the lounge with refreshments. Now, Refreshments to me means refreshments, but uh, to one couple in the church, a dear godly couple who are now in glory, but shut in, they got the bulletin and they read it and they said, look at this, refreshments, they're serving alcohol in Charlotte Chapel. Now, to them it meant alcohol, to me it does not mean alcohol. If only they'd come to me and said, pastor, is this really true? I would have told them, no, of course it's not true. Would you really think I would do that? I mean, well... I don't even like the taste of it. Well, anyway, that's another story. But, uh, but they didn't. And I tell you, it's to the pastoral team, because everybody phoned a friend who phoned another friend. The pastoral team spent the next two weeks going around church members saying, no, we are not serving alcohol in the lounge. That's just, maybe says so a trivial example. But back to more serious issues, the church here in Jerusalem. James asked Paul, what should we do? They will certainly hear that you've come. Now, they could have sent out an edict for everybody saying, or a bulletin notice, or put it on email. No, they didn't have on the church website, you know, saying this is not true. But instead, they, they asked Paul to do something. Look at their response to the rumour. They make a proposal to Paul. Verse 23. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you've come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites and pay for their expenses so they can have their heads shaved. Now, if you read that, you may think, what on earth solution is that? You need to have some sort of knowledge of Jewish background, all right? In the law of Moses that we talk about, one of the books is called the book of Numbers and it gives instructions of if you were a Jew, if you wanted to make a vow. Now, by a vow, you don't just mean, you know, I promise to do this like scouts on the sort of thing. This is a serious commitment to God that for a period, this vow meant you would separate yourself off to focus on God more in, in a clearer way. It was called a Nazarite vow. Nothing to do with Nazareth, but Nazarite vow. You can read it in the book of Numbers. 
And what usually it lasted around 30 days, in which a person separated themselves from society, they abstained from alcohol, even grapes and grape skins, it's all there in detail in the Lord of Moses, and associations with the dead, they couldn't even go to a funeral if a family member died, and they also let their hair grow, so that people knew that this was something serious. All right? Now, at the end of the vow, what you did, you then went to the priest in the temple, and asked to be reinstated in society. And you had to follow certain rituals. You sacrificed some animals, you brought some animals for sacrifice, and some grain and cereal. And the priest accepted them, and shaved your head for you, and they even sacrificed the hair that you shaved off. Now, I know we don't do this in Charlotte Chapel, and we've no uh, thoughts of introducing it, but this this is the tradition behind this story. Look at number six, if you want to know more details. Now, James says to Paul, look, These four believers are coming to the end of their vow. They're in the last week of it, leading up to Pentecost. All right? What they say to Paul is, we don't want you to join in the vow. What we want you to do is to show your support for these men by joining them in the temple and paying their expenses. And to go along with them to the final purification, which meant you presented yourself to the priest, and Paul had been out of the city for a long time and was regarded probably as ceremonial and clean because he'd been in Gentile territory all this time, you come to the temple with them as a sign of mutual support. And James concludes by saying, verse 24, then everybody will know there is no truth in these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. And Paul says, I'll do it. Fine. He agrees with the proposal, if you look at the story, and he goes to the priest to set in place the ritual, the timetable. It involved three visits to the temple in this final week with a final purification ceremony. Now, just pause here a moment. The question is, was he right or wrong to do this? And opinion is sharply divided. Some people think, in joining in with this, he was contradicting the message he'd preached about the law not being necessary for salvation. Other people think, and I'm among them, that this wasn't a matter of principle about salvation. It was a matter of practice. It was a brave attempt to be sensitive to his fellow believers and to try and defuse the situation. This is what Paul wrote to the Christians in Corinth. He had a kind of way of working which we need to keep in mind and and should we should follow ourselves if we're Christians, church members particularly. He says, this is his principle, 1 Corinthians 9, to the Jews I become like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I become like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, in order to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I become like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. Can you see what he's saying? He's saying, when I'm with the Jews, I behave in a sensitive way towards them in order to win them for Christ. And when I'm with Gentiles, I behave in a sensitive way towards them. His principle is 1 Corinthians 9 verse 22, I've become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. So if you know the story Acts 16, he circumcises Timothy because his mother is Jewish, but he refuses to circumcise Titus, another of his uh, colleagues, because he's from a Gentile background. And that is why he accedes to the request of James. He's going to identify with them to try and defuse the situation and preserve the unity of the church. 
Because to Paul, the unity of the church was absolutely essential. He didn't say, look, stop fussing about the law. It's all about Gentile belief now, and I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. If you like, I'll stop my Gentile church, and you guys in Jerusalem can stick with your Jewish religion. No, he said, we need to come together, and I will make accommodations. Now, how does this help us in similar situations? We need to examine whether what we're asked to do compromises the gospel or whether it's purely a matter of tradition. And it's not as easy as it sounds. In the Bible Speaks Today commentary on Acts, John Stott writes, the issue between them concerned culture, ceremony and tradition. The solution to which they came was not a compromise in the sense of sacrificing a doctrinal or moral principle, but a concession in the area of practice. The problem for many of us is that we find it hard to separate what is a matter of gospel principle and what is purely a cultural practice. I don't have time to tease that out, but I suggest you discuss it over your non-kosher Sunday lunch. In a sermon on Acts, uh, Kent Hughes, the American, says, we need, like Paul, to have hearts that because of a passion for souls and God's glory are willing to run the risk of unwise decisions. Some hearts never risk anything. They strive neither for sin nor for sainthood. They desire a temperate zone free from the storms of sin, from the tempests that accompany a life of service. This is what he says. Never burn for the souls of others and you will avoid rejection. Never suggest a plan to reach the community or the world and you will never be criticised for it. Never give counsel to someone undergoing the pain of separation or divorce. You will never give wrong advice. But just think, he says, of all the heavenly checks you will never cash for yourselves and yourself and others. And then he says, O Lord, give us, each of us, a heart like Paul's. So Paul does what was asked. He goes through the ceremony with these four guys and he comes finally on the seventh day to the temple and he is where it all goes pear-shaped. An older writer, Ian Blakelock, comments, he sought to love, to understand, to act in selfless humility. The result by that tragic irony which heaven sometimes permits was disaster. So, turn with me more briefly then from rumours in the church to rumours in the city, verses 27 to 36. Now, I want you to try and imagine the scene. I don't know if you're familiar with the sort of layout of the temple in Jerusalem. I was looking for a good picture, but I couldn't find one that really suits. Paul arrives in the temple, and he goes to the priest. The priests were in the inner court, where they offered sacrifices on behalf of the people. So, if you had a sacrifice or a ceremony, you came into the inner court, but it was reserved for Jews only. You could come as far as that, what was called the court of the Gentiles and the court of women, but only Jews could go beyond that. So Paul's there, he's fulfilling his duties, and there he's spotted by some old enemies from his missionary journey from the province of Asia, the Roman province of Asia. Probably people from the city of Ephesus who had also provoked a riot there. And they repeat their actions. Verse 27, they stirred up the whole crowd and seized him. This time the rumour about Paul has two parts. First again, centred on what he taught. Men of Israel, they cry. You can imagine this great crowd of people and suddenly someone shouts out, Men of Israel! This is the man! And they all point at Paul. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law in this place. Um, Scottish New Testament scholar Howard Marshall comments, It is ironical 
that this should have been the charge against Paul when he himself was undergoing purification so he wouldn't defile the temple. And added to this is an allegation about what Paul did. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. Now, the seriousness of this step cannot be over-exaggerated. To bring a non-Jew into the inner court was punishable by death. There was a low wall that separated the two courts. And there were big notice boards on it at regular intervals. In fact, excavations have uncovered two of these notice boards. And we know exactly what they said. There's a picture on the screen if you're interested. This is what they said. No foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds this temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught trespassing will bear personal responsibility for his ensuing death. Even the Romans accepted this. And if you stepped over the boundaries... The Romans ain't going to save you. They'll let the Jews carry out their punishment and kill anybody who's a non-Jew who enters here. This is serious business. But again, it's a rumour. It's not true. Yes, Paul had been seen in the city with a non-Jew, Trophimus, who came from Ephesus. And someone had added two and two and made five and said, I saw Paul with Trophimus. Yeah, I did. I saw him in the inner temple. Therefore, he must have taken Trophimus in the inner temple. Therefore, he's guilty of this crime. It's what one writer calls the logic of prejudice. Now, there's no reasoning here. There's no investigation about the truth of these rumours. Only immediate reaction, instant violence. The whole city was aroused. The people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple. And immediately the gates were shut while they were trying to kill him. Such is the result, can be the result, of false rumours. Over these past months, you should know this if you're a Christian, if you just watch the news, over this past month, there's been terrible scenes in the province, uh, in the state of Orissa in eastern India. I lived in India for many years, and it's the most volatile situation probably since independence. Dozens of Christians have been killed. Churches have been burned. Homes have been destroyed. Thousands of people have been made homeless. Do you know how it started? A radical Hindu leader was killed and the Christians were accused of carrying out the murder. A Maoist group immediately said, we did it, but nobody listened. They just took the opportunity to vent their rage and jealousy against the Christian community. And Paul's life here is in real danger. Just, just try and visualize the situation again. There's this kind of riot going on in the inner temple, and everybody's running towards this focal point. And these guys are knocking six bells out of Paul and are about to kill him. Now, next to the temple was a fortress. It's called the Fortress of Antonia and it housed a thousand Roman troops who were there to keep law and order. And they had two towers a hundred feet high and they had sentries that stood on the top of it just to keep an eye on this kind of thing. And as soon as the sentry looked down and here he is looking down into the inner court area he sees this riot going on and he calls out the tribune, or the kind of colonel of the regiment. And they rush down. There are two stairs leading down into the outer court. All right? If you can imagine this. The soldiers, there are at least two centurions involved here. Probably two or three hundred troops. And they rush into the crowd to try and stop the situation and to save Paul. And they rush into the crowd. And as, they, as the soldiers come rushing down, you can imagine this scene, I'm sure. As they rush down into the area, the people stop beating Paul up. And the tribune rushes up and tries and finds out what's happening. 
nobody seems very clear, as often happens in these situations. So Paul is seized, he's put in chains. And the order is given then to carry him back to the barracks, back up the steps they came from. It's an incredible situation because probably the crowd are just going ballistic at this point and Paul is being carried over the heads of the people to safety. The, I shouldn't tell you this, the nearest I've ever been to this was in 1969 at Hampton with 140,000 people watching them get a guy in the crowd who'd thrown a bottle and carrying him over the heads of the people down onto the pitch to arrest him. Okay, some of you can imagine that, some can't. And I'll take the criticisms for being there later. But anyway, that was, the, that was the situation like that. That was the kind of situation. You see, this is a different response to rumours. Don't confuse us with the facts. We've made up our minds. Brutal violence. They don't want to hear the truth. This is just an excuse to kill the messenger and silence his message. Now, I have to tell you that all over the world... We are very fortunate in our country, but all over the world, Christians are in these kind of situations of mob violence where people are killed for following Christ. Particularly the Muslim world. Well, there are Muslims who want to engage in dialogue with Christians. Almost every Muslim state places restrictions on Christians. While we continue to build mosques in our country, I have no objection to that. My theory is for every mosque we build in this country, let the Saudis build at least one church, allow at least one church to be built in Saudi Arabia. There are about a million expat Christians from a Christian community living in Saudi Arabia. There's not a single church there. If you want to know more about this, come to the seminar Saturday afternoon. Take two hours to find out what's happening in our country as well. But in our country, while there's no real violence, there are more subtle attempts to silence the message of Christ or to relegate it from the area of public debate. Let a cardinal stand up and say something about politics and he's shot down in flames. Don't mix politics and religion. The constant attempt is to relegate the Christian faith to some sphere of, you know, religious, private life. And can I ask you, maybe you're not a Christian this morning. Have you explored the claims of Christ? Or have you just simply closed your mind and said, I know that's all about Christianity. I'm not interested. I don't want to follow it through. I've made up my mind. Don't confuse me with the facts. So this is what happens when rumors spread. Let me just conclude. I'm almost there. Two themes from this chapter that we read, these verses we read together. First of all, the closed gates. Look again at verse 30. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple. Immediately the gates were shut. That's the gates to the inner temple. Many have seen in this statement more than meets the eye. The gates are shut to the inner part of the temple where the sacrifices are offered for sin still, even though Christ has died as a full and final sacrifice. It's a symbolic sign that there is no place for Gentiles in the old religion. It will be the last time that Paul enters this temple, despite all his attempts. And in around a dozen years, the Roman army will enter the temple area again, this time raising it and the city to the ground, leaving not one stone left on another. It will be the end of the old religion of temple worship in Jerusalem. And the tension between Christians from a Jewish and Gentile background about which 
James and Paul were so concerned will be largely resolved before the city falls in 70 AD almost all the Christians leave knowing what was coming the closed gates secondly and finally notice the crowd's cry the account finishes with these words the crowd that followed kept shouting away with him followed who? Paul but also the master that he followed F.F. Bruce comments as another Jewish mob had cried 27 years before so these now kept up the shout away with him and as we follow through the story and come this evening as Colin continues it although Paul may be exonerated by Roman justice Jesus was not the Roman governor Pilate who examined him knew that the rumours were not true I find no fault in this man he said but the crowd are not satisfied Luke 23:18. with one voice they cried out away with this man release Barabbas to us convicted thief and murderer and despite Pilate's pleas the crowd cry all the louder crucify him crucify him so Jesus is led away to be crucified on a cross instead of Barabbas instead of you and me so Pilate decided to grant their demand he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder the one they asked for and surrendered Jesus to their will so I conclude by asking you are you in the crowd shouting away with him or is Jesus your Lord and Saviour are you his follower no matter what it may cost you if you are you want to come again to this table to give thanks for what he did for you in your place condemned he stood sealed my pardon with his blood hallelujah what a saviour maybe you want to come for the first time to this table and truly eat and drink by faith confessing Jesus as your Lord and saviour why not come for the first time he will welcome you forgive you reconcile you to himself give you his spirit bring you into his family give you the hope of eternal life that is the challenge of the words of the crowd a challenge we need to address for ourselves let's just bow